This is the human side of healthcare, where we explore all aspects of today's ever-changing healthcare environment. Brought to you by the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council and featuring CEO Stephen Love with co-host Thomas Miller. Now, let's make healthcare human again. And welcome to the human side of healthcare. Steve Love along with Thomas Miller. Thomas, another Sunday in May. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we got past Mother's Day and here we are, right? It's Absolutely. Like, <laughs> we're here. Okay. So the big thing this week, we're having these little Friday events of taking another notch toward opening some things up. So is this all we're going to see for a while or is there more? Certainly we're not at capacity. So where are we? Well, you know, let's first talk what's going on currently with hospitals. Hospitals currently have approximately 60 to 65% occupancy in their medical surgical beds and about 65% in ICU beds, which certainly lets you know that we do have capacity. Now, what we're going to be watching is, as you mentioned, things have loosened up, restrictions have been removed. It takes a while for the incubation period So it's probably going to be another 10 days to 14 days to see what is the impact. We know that we're doing more tests, so we're going to have more positive cases. But what we're really going to monitor is how many people are being hospitalized, how many of those people need ICU beds or ventilators. I'm running my calendar now by Sundays and shows. So what you're saying is that not the next show, but the next show, we should know more. Is that right? Yeah, I would say by the end of May, we should have a pretty good uh, indicator on some of the restrictions we've already removed. And, you know, what's important is the mobility of the people. I talked to some of the epidemiologists that do the modeling, and we are more mobile than we were three and four weeks ago. And as you have more mobility, you have more risk to spread. All right. We will see. And I know there are lots of careful eyes watching it. Absolutely. We're going to be monitoring it, and we're going to certainly hope for the best. Now, you know how they say there's a new sheriff in town. There's a new drug in town. Yeah, it's called remdesivir. And this was a medication that has been here previously, but it was in clinical trials. And we do have clinical trials with this medication. But about a week ago, 607,000 vials of this medication was donated to the U.S. Health and Human Services Department by Gilead Scientific. And so the federal government has decided to send some to the different states and the states determine the criteria where this drug will be distributed. You're right. It's come to town. It's in Fort Worth at JPS. It's in Dallas at Parkland. And it's in Tyler at Trinity Mother Francis. You mentioned trials. Are those trials already underway? Were they here before this new announcement? Oh, yes. Yes. Those drug trials, once the FDA gave approval, uh, those drug trials started throughout the country And some of the hospitals here in North Texas are participating in those clinical trials prior to Gilead making this generous donation. Well, it's a generous donation, but was our portion generous? Well, you know, I guess that's a matter of opinion. My opinion on this, certainly the fact that Gilead gave this to the federal government is a generous donation. The criteria the government used, the federal government, to get to the state Uh, We don't really quite know yet. We're still trying to unpack that. Let me give you an example. 
Texas got enough medication to treat approximately 120 patients in the state of Texas. That's the same amount that Rhode Island got. So I'm not suggesting that we should get more than anyone else. But what I am suggesting is we have 28 million people. I think we need our fair share. Is this some kind of a miracle drug? You know, I don't know if it's a miracle, as you know, and I've repeated many times, I'm not a clinician or a physician, but the physicians I talk to and the clinicians tell me this medication really seems to help people that are having difficulty in breathing. Uh, Sometimes people, even on ventilators, they give this medication. And as a result, the people that get this medication tend to have a shorter length of stay, which is a good thing in the hospital. Well, uh, every little bit is encouraging, especially if we might be feeding more into the pipeline. Absolutely. And I think the fact that the FDA gave this emergency approval and did it in a very fast-track manner kind of underscores that this is probably a good medication. Earlier, you mentioned the hospital capacities. How are the hospitals doing financially? Everybody's taking a hit, right? Yeah, you know, uh, that's a very complex question, and and let me explain it to you this way. We're very blessed in North Texas that we have large health systems uh, for the most part, and they're well-run and financially strong. However, COVID-19 has hit everyone, uh, and this is what's happened. It's been kind of a two-prong approach. One, big loss in revenue as they canceled all their elective surgeries to ensure, one, that we had capacity so that we could treat and we could save the PP&E, that took a lot of revenue away that normally comes to hospitals. Two, expenses went up. More expense associated with medications, more expense with PPE, more expense with workforce. And as you know, unfortunately, many people uh, are out of work and many people, unfortunately, now don't have health insurance. The hospitals are certainly going to treat people. They are going to do it. Physicians are going to treat people. They took an oath. But if you don't get paid, that adds to either your bad debt expense or a contractual type write-off or an indigent care write-off. So, yes, hospitals have been hit really hard, especially in the last three months financially. And not only here in what we would consider the Metroplex, but our rural hospitals are really having a very difficult time financially. You know, Steve, one of the things about this process, your perch on it, from February on, you've been in extensive weekly meetings discussing the models with the various authorities around the North Texas area. In your opinion, how have the models held up? I think the models have done pretty well. In fact, they pretty much predicted the peak, and we've been through what we consider the peak. Now they're looking at every two weeks. They're not modeling beyond two weeks because of the restrictions removed, and that's going to impact us. So not only thinking in terms of model, what is it going to do for the economy? In fact, I think maybe we ought to bring an economist to our show next week. Oh, that would be good because even when we get the medical impact of this over with, we are long ways finished from the financial impact. Yeah, you know, really, what's going to be the new normal 
economic-wise. Yeah, and those are unanswerable questions. Well, speaking of models, let's talk to somebody who knows about models next. Yeah, Dr. John Carlo, and he can tell you all about models and some of the assumptions that go into them. And some great points on how to keep the numbers down, including what to do with that mask. Absolutely. John's a great guy, and you can't miss this segment. And just a reminder about our podcast, it's on all the major podcast players. If you just search human side of healthcare, you will find us. We have a lot more information from the uncut interviews that we don't have time to air here on News Radio 1080, KRLD, and radio.com. This is the human side of healthcare on 1080 KRLD and the radio.com app where we feature healthcare's hottest topics and what our North Texas area hospitals are doing to make healthcare human again. And welcome to the human side of healthcare, Steve Love, along with Thomas Miller. And we're continuing our discussion, obviously, about COVID-19. We could not have a better guest to be with us today than Dr. John Carlo. You've probably seen him on TV, heard him on the radio. John, day job is he's president and CEO of Prison Health North Texas. He has a tremendous amount of experience in that he has served as president and chair of the Dallas County Medical Society, and he's worked in the Department of Health, and he's a familiar face here in the DFW area. John, welcome to the show. Well, hello, and thank you for having me. You know, John, as we look at things have opened up and we're in the incubation period, we're watching things and people are running models. I've looked at a lot of the different models. Why is there so much variation in epidemic models and how they predict outcomes? Well, that's a great question. I think the first part is the reason the models all have a lot of different pieces to it is because they're using different assumptions and different uh, sort of pieces of information that will create different, uh, you know, sort of outcomes or or projected outcomes. You know, it's not unlike when we see hurricanes uh, come through. If you see the weather forecasts, oftentimes you see these models projecting all sorts of different paths. And so models are not perfect by any means. And, you know, particularly for coronavirus, we there's a lot of things we do not know. Uh, We have a good understanding of what the incubation period is. In other words, the time from exposure to the time you might show signs and symptoms. But that is only just one component that's a part of the model itself. So there's just a lot of things that go into a model that without sort of the knowns or, you know, a real concise amount of information that we know, uh, there's going to be high degrees of variability in what the eventual uh, models are going to show us. And, you know, I think that's why we have to take all of the models with a perspective and not rely on any one or, you know, use any one of the tools to make our decisions for us. You know, this is something that's a, a new thing. We've never seen a coronavirus coronavirus pandemic before. So we're sort of starting from scratch. And really, unfortunately, that, you know, it it does not give us the opportunity to understand what tomorrow and the next day is going to look like. You know, that's a good point. I like your analogy to the hurricane. Let's hope COVID-19 goes out to sea. John, you know, you've, you've dealt with Ebola. You've dealt with West Nile. Sometimes people forget we're kind of the epicenter of West Nile. Any lessons learned from that that will help us with COVID-19? 
Well, I do have to say that for whatever reason, North Texas has certainly, we have certainly had our experiences. Uh, and, you know, this is something that we've we've started from, uh, you know, SARS in 2003. We kind of started that point. Thankfully, didn't have any SARS cases, but certainly had a lot of concerns. And particularly at the hospitals, there was a lot of ruling out potential cases, even back then. Uh, taking us through West Nile, you know, this was the largest epidemic of West Nile virus in the world here in Dallas in an urban setting. We had the most cases that had ever been um, ever seen before. Um, so not the best thing to be known for by any means, but it certainly has sort of told us that we definitely have experiences. Uh, and of course, Ebola, you know, uh, having that one case uh, really set our community in motion in response. And, you know, I will say that I think at the end of the day, all of these things that we've had to face in these challenges, they do make us stronger as a community. And I think what we've seen here in North Texas in this current coronavirus pandemic is, you know, this community, I think, is doing what it needs to do uh, and is responding effectively. I think we've taken that challenge of uh, staying at home and we've taken that challenge of physical distancing very seriously. And I, I think it has a lot to do with our experience here in North Texas. I'm going to ask you a real quick question. Should people wear a mask in public? Well, it's a, it's a good question. It's a somewhat complicated question, um, and I think the way I would answer it is first to talk about what does the mask do for you uh, and why do we recommend uh, wearing masks in public. The honest truth about wearing a mask is it's actually not going to protect you as the wearer. The, the effect of a mask is that it prevents, if you are one of those individuals that are asymptomatic, in other words, if you're not sick, you're not showing any signs or symptoms, but yet you are still infectious with coronavirus, wearing a mask will reduce the amount of uh, spray that your respiratory droplets would travel. So in other words, it's really trying to catch what's coming out of your own mouth and nose so it doesn't spread farther uh, and, and infect other people. So it is a little sort of Unfortunately, you know, it doesn't necessarily protect you, but it does protect people uh, that are around you. And certainly if you have to be in situations uh, where you're in less six feet of contact with one another, you know, there is a good consideration to make that an additional part of what you can do to uh, lower the transmission in our communities. Finally, what I would also add is I've been out and, and to the grocery store and other places and I've, I've seen folks wearing masks and I think most are not, you know, you have to wear them correctly. So, you know, keep in mind the mask has to cover both your mouth and nose at all times. And, and I know you see so many folks with it, you know, pushed under their nose or even down under their chin. Uh, it doesn't work, obviously, down there. The other part that I see a lot is everybody, because they're so uncomfortable wearing the mask, you're constantly touching the mask and, you know, maybe scratching underneath it. And again, you know, this kind of defeats the purpose because you could be introducing uh, whatever's on that mask e either to yourself or, or, or touching something and then somebody else. So, you know, there's a lot of things you can do wrong with wearing the mask. And so you have to be practical and really you do the right thing if that's what you're going to do. And John, I wanted to ask you a question and, and I've looked online. I've, I've tried to read. I hadn't really found a definitive answer and, and you may not know, but Thomas was telling me he got a little upset the other night. He was in the grocery store and a guy walked by who didn't have a mask on and the guy sneezed. 
Luckily, Thomas was more than six feet away. But it made me think, if someone coughs or sneezes and they do not have a mask on, how long does that linger in the air before it finally comes to ground? Because if somebody sneezed and then you immediately walk through the space they sneezed, I would think you potentially could get infected if they had COVID-19. You know, this is one of the most challenging parts, I think, that we are uh, limited in knowing in terms of respiratory disease transmission. You know, it's, it's fascinating to me. It's always been fascinating that, you know, we have the common colds every year. We have bad influenza seasons. We have influenza pandemics. But yet we don't know with certainty this degree of transmission for many of these respiratory uh, infectious diseases, despite being how common they are, which I think is, is very interesting. They have done studies, and one of them is a sort of classic characterization where you induce a sneeze and you you try you watch the particles very carefully and see how far they travel this is done at some laboratories they actually sort of humorously call it the gazuntite chamber where they actually you know have challenged these um settings to see see how far these things pass and travel you know they do travel further than six feet and in fact you can cough and sneeze respiratory droplets a pretty good amount of distance and what happens then is the air dries these wet droplets very very quickly and most of the time they will drop and fall to the ground pretty close but some of them will evaporate to the point where they can float in the air and the real question then is, can coronavirus sit and be still alive, if you will, on these floating, drying respiratory particles uh, as they float through the air? And, you know, we don't know. We don't know the degree of that. I do think that uh, for this virus, we've seen it probably more easily transmissible in this route than influenza. But I do think that for the most part, most of these virus particles are only going to stay within the six feet of distance. Uh, and thankfully, that's where a lot of these individual protections can can make the difference. John, we really appreciate what you told us, and uh, we did leave a lot on the cutting room floor, so to speak. So we're going to have you back next week to talk about vaccines. And, and this is where you have to really balance looking very carefully at a good vaccine that has a good target and that also has a, a strong safety profile and also has a good duration of protection. You know, you're, it, the other part is you don't want to have a vaccine that only works for a few months. Uh, you really want one that has a duration of a longer protection period. And people are certainly lined up on both sides of the vaccination debate. Some say no way. Some say I'll be the first in line. We'll have lots of great information coming on the hot vaccination topic next week. You know, Thomas, let's pivot. Cardiology. We've got to talk a little bit more about that, especially with COVID-19. Well, there are so many news stories coming out now about how COVID virus is affecting so many parts of the body. And one we know that it definitely affects is the heart. We have a cardiologist from UT Southwestern. This is actually another part two. Dr. Amit Kira is going to be back with us in the next segment to talk about how COVID affects the heart and some things to think about to protect your heart during this quarantine time. So stay with us. Uh, we're going to take a break, but when we come back, you're going to hear Dr. Kara on 1080 KRLD and radio.com. 
The DFW Hospital Council, along with our over 90 member hospitals in North Texas, are proud to bring you the human side of healthcare with Council President and CEO Stephen Love and co-host Thomas Miller. Welcome back to the human side of healthcare. Steve Love, along with Thomas Miller. Last week, we had Dr. Amit Kira on, a cardiologist from UT Southwestern. We left a lot of material on the table, Steve. We really did, and he's got some great cardio tips. So let's do a part two. This is Dr. Amit Kara from UT Southwestern. Dr. Kara, this is Thomas Miller. One of the questions I wanted to ask was about stress during these times triggering cardiovascular disease. Right. You know, there's so many ways to answer that or address that. And first, there's the acute stress. And I think when when the COVID pandemic first sort of exploded, there's a lot of data when people look at traumatic events, whether it be uh, 9-11 or different things where there's a spike in hospitalizations for heart attacks afterwards. So certainly in that initial phase, that could be operative. Here now, we're in sort of that chronic stress, that background stress. And there's, there's so many things. There's fear about catching COVID, fear about our loved ones, fear about our jobs, and also just being out of our routine, which I think gives a lot of people comfort. So there's no question there's a lot of sort of chronic stress at this point. And there's pretty good data about stress affecting the cardiovascular system. There's been a lot of recent work about how it affects uh, sort of brain function and uh, certain release of certain chemicals that can have adverse effects on uh, the cardiovascular system. The other part you know, that I see is stress relating to unhealthy habits. So we know about stress eating, increased alcohol, weight gain, things like that. And also affects your blood pressure. A lot of people's blood pressure goes up during stressful um, episodes. So uh, there's multiple ways. I think, you know, how do we combat that? Like many things, first perspective, taking things into account, controlling what we can in terms of keeping ourselves healthy, trying to do social distancing, turn in some positives, how we can help our neighbors and our communities. And then also keeping active. Physical activity certainly helps with stress. Uh, that's been shown in multiple studies. Uh, and finally, there's some good data on you know mindfulness techniques in terms of deep breathing and other mindfulness techniques that can lower blood pressure and help us cope with stress. And again, there's a whole lot of online free available opportunities to do that. So I think these are ways for us to address that. Now, we know that cardiovascular disease is a progressive disease. It gets worse over time if it's not treated. So what we're talking about is how do you, you know, there's nothing short of examining the patient, right? Getting your vitals checked, knowing your numbers, et cetera. Now people aren't going to the doctor. How do they do that? Well, well, thank you for that. And if there's anything they want to get across today, that that's the message. And that is, you know, I'm a, I'm a director of preventive cardiology at our institution. And I Think about exactly what you said. This is a progressive disease. We can prevent most of the heart attacks and strokes out there, and we need to continue to do that despite this COVID epidemic, which certainly is horrendous and, and will be with us for, for some time, which we'll have to address. We cannot lose sight of preventing heart attacks and strokes in this progressive illness. As much as you say, I definitely get your point about the face-to-face visit, and I certainly enjoy and value those, but Really, when it comes to prevention, that that may be not completely necessary. What do I mean by that? You know, these days you can get a blood pressure cuff for for not much. It's probably the best investment you'll ever make. Buy it for your birthday or, or or whatever, and you can share those numbers with your doctor so we can get your blood pressure, your cholesterol. You know, labs are open. Most people have had their labs done within the last year or so. There are ways to get laboratory tests periodically. That's still available without a face to face visit or a tele visit. 
I can get your weight. I can assess your nutritional status. I can understand your exercise. I can assess symptoms. All of those things via a telehealth visit. So I, I absolutely think we can continue and we, we cannot stop the progress during this COVID emergency. We have to continue our preventive efforts. And there's so many ways to do it. And I'm thankful for the opportunity of telehealth. The very least, even just to connect and run through our checklist of things that we need to be thinking about that we just covered. So I do think that especially with prevention, it's it's the best place for telehealth because the physical exam part is perhaps not quite as um, important and there's not as much, you know, active kind of advanced cardiac testing that has to be done immediately. So I think it's a great place to uh, implement telehealth. And then where is that thin line between a telemedicine visit and needing to come into the office? Great question because, you know, to be fair, there's certainly a necessity to come in the office. And let's talk about when that might be. First is if there's sort of a change in, in physical exam findings. So the time for the office is if um, one is certain patients just for whatever reason have more comfort. But I think as time goes on, more and more people will get used to this idea of a telehealth visit. Um, not, not for everything, but for, for many things, I think they'll appreciate the convenience. The times where it's most helpful are a couple. One is if there's a change in physical findings. So a lot of our patients have congestive heart failure where they have the uh, ability to retain fluid. So if they're getting short of breath and gaining weight, we kind of need to see them in person and do that examination to understand, listen to the heart and things like that to better understand if there's important changes that are going on that require more interventions or testing. The second thing is if we actually anticipate needing some testing. There's many tests that can be done in a, a, a physician's office, like an EKG, an ultrasound of the heart, various other tests that can be done. And so if someone has a kind of a more, uh, I'm going to call subacute issue, meaning um, some symptoms that are brewing where we just can't sort it out without kind of, you know, laying the hands on, if you will, and, and doing a good check. Um, and, you know, most of the time, even if there was a preliminary telehealth visit, we can then follow up and say, you know, I really need to see you. And um, let's plan for that next week or so. So there can be a, a two-step here. Um, but I think talking to your physician, they can help guide you what type of visit type is, is best suited for you. And what about keeping your labs up to date? That's a little trickier because we know that people appropriately would be concerned with social distancing with labs. I will tell you that many laboratories are open. They're just open by appointment where we might have been used to just walking in. That that obviously can't be the case because we need to make sure we spread out patients. So labs are open. I think um, to some extent, some labs that are done maybe every six months or three months that are non-essential can be deferred. So there's some labs that can be deferred to a little bit later. There are even point-of-care labs, some places where they can be done via a, a finger stick or other ways where you're not quite in the lab for so long. So so labs can be done. We just have to be on the physician side a little bit more careful about which are the most crucial labs and what are the ones that are most helpful so that we're minimizing exposures to patients unnecessarily. Let's think about two things, diet and exercise, right? So it really boils down to what we put in our mouth and then how much we move our body. And I'm thinking about comfort food. You know, right now it seems like everybody that I've talked to wants to have a few cookies or a few chips or some ice cream around. And you know, you know if it's there, it's going to be eaten. (laughs) Comfort food is not mushrooms and tomatoes and cucumbers and lettuce. So how do you advise people on that? (laughs) That is the Achilles heel, I think, for most people. And, you know, this was the truth before COVID, and it's only uh, kind of exacerbated a bit during COVID. I I can can speak for my own journey and what I recommend patients. I think when this first started, I think, obviously, there was a lot of shock, and and that, that certainly has not gone away. But 
first, the very unhealthy habits, appreciating that that's our natural response. We talked about stress earlier. You know, this has gone on for a while now, and, and frankly, we all know from the current reports, this will go on for a while. We have to at some point realize this is not just a short-term thing anymore, and we have to adapt to new habits. So I'll say a few things. First and foremost, my own self included, I minimize now bringing that into the house because if it's here, it's sort of easy to grab. And I think it's not to say that we can't have any comfort foods. That That's not true. I'll give you an example. Let's say you like ice cream. You know, we, we bought these ones that are 50 calories a pop and they taste delicious. They're just not a huge bowl, you know? And so there are ways to enjoy um, treats. Everyone is allowed to have some. But let's be careful about filling our fridge or refrigerators predominantly with those things. In our home, we have a what we've done is we have a ton of fruits and vegetables available at all times, so that you know it makes it easier to reach for those things when you're kind of headed to the kitchen and want to snack. Those things are, are you know, the things that are more plentiful and at, at your hand's length are the ones that you're more likely to consume. You know, we've been a lot more creative about things that we've been preparing at home, which, you know, that we've had a bit more time to do that. So I think that's an opportunity. So I, I don't want to say you can't have comfort foods. I would just say maybe buy them uh, uh, carefully, selectively, pick the right ones, and also make sure you have plenty of plenty of healthy foods like fruits, vegetables, other snacks that you enjoy that can be healthy. And I think you'll end up more commonly make the right decision. Now, a specific question to COVID, there are so many myths out there. We know it affects the lungs. How does it affect the heart? Well, great question. And, and you know, as a cardiologist, I'll say that, you know, we first appreciate it's, it's predominantly a lung illness that, you know, it affects the, the lung lining and causes severe respiratory disease. Having said that, though, there's been a lot of literature and some great work, including some of our my colleagues at UT Southwestern have written some great papers on this based on our experience and what's being reported about COVID's effects on the heart. Now, you know, a smaller proportion of people will, will get um, cardiac problems, maybe, you know, 20% or so of the, of the significantly ill people. So, you know, remember, most people, the vast majority of people with COVID are asymptomatic. But for those that need to be hospitalized, you know, a smaller proportion will get cardiac manifestations. It's thought for a couple of things. There's two kind of prevailing hypotheses, and one is that the virus itself may affect the heart and may, may attack the heart, if you will. That's one possibility. The other is when people are so infected and inflamed, it's kind of like an inflammatory syndrome where about two weeks into this, when you're really, really sick with a horrible lung infection and the inflammation is rampant in your body, that that inflammation causes some uh, bad effects on the heart, affecting the heart function, making it weak, and also your blood pressure to collapse, if you will. Those are really critically ill patients, ones that we are carefully, carefully involved with and, and monitor and have, uh, have uh, working groups around so that we can make sure that the sickest of our patients get the very best care. So it's not that common, uh, but we do know that it can happen. Ultimately, back to the beginning again, patients with cardiovascular disease are slightly higher risk of getting COVID and risk of, of dying from it. I, I use the word, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, modestly increased risk, so I don't want to create fear. I get a lot of questions from my patients about this. I think if everyone's careful and does good social distancing, um, is taking good care of themselves and really is just careful as best as they can to avoid contacts and getting COVID in the first place, I think everyone will will do well. Uh, but there are some cardiac manifestations and our hospital as well as, you know, most others have important protocols in place to take care of those. Thank you, Dr. Kara. Appreciate those great tips and thanks for being on the show. 
And Thomas, what's up fourth segment? So we're going to head over to one of the great legacies in Dallas in healthcare, Texas Scottish Rite, and talk to Gladys Kolonofsky. She's going to tell us about that world-renowned dyslexia program at Texas Scottish Rite. So many kids in schools have been so positively impacted by this program. That's coming up next right here on the Human Side of Healthcare. We're continuing our conversation on how you can empower yourself to have the best health possible in today's ever-changing healthcare environment. This is the human side of healthcare with DFW Hospital Council President and CEO Stephen Love and co-host Thomas Miller. And welcome to the human side of healthcare, Steve Love along with Thomas Miller. And we want our listeners to learn a little bit more today about a program that you may not even know exists. It's the Luke Waits Center for Dyslexia and Learning Disorders at Texas Scottish Rite Hospital for Children. And we're delighted that we have with us today Gladys Kolomaski, and she is going to tell us a little bit about this program. I know you think in terms of orthopedics when you think of Texas Scottish Rite for Children, but they have other programs there that really benefit the community. Gladys, thank you for being with us. Absolutely. Glad to be here, Steve. I mentioned that pediatric orthopedics in a hospital are certainly known at Texas Scottish Rite. So how does the Luke Waits Center for Dyslexia and Learning Disorders fit in with orthopedics? It's a great question. There is no relationship between orthopedics and dyslexia. The reason there is a dyslexia program at Scottish Rite Hospital goes back over 50 years. And a consulting neurologist at the hospital, Dr. Luke Waits, was asked to come on and support the orthopedists even full-time. And he said in 1965, I'd be glad to, but I would need to bring my practice in dyslexia. So they needed him. They respected his commitment to the patients and to the children, and they said, I'm sure they didn't really know everything about what dyslexia was at that point, but they said, come on, bring it, because you're taking care of children. You know, we we talk about dyslexia, but can you define it, and what do we really know about it today? Very good. Dyslexia, at its core, is a disorder of reading and spelling. And what is so interesting is that in 1968, the definition, the first medical consensus definition of dyslexia was developed at Scottish Rite Hospital. And a group of international neurologists came together, hosted by the hospital, hosted by Dr. Waits, and developed this definition. So we're, we're very proud that we were the location of the first definition. You know, that's amazing. So the real consensus of this group of professionals, international group, to come up with the actual definition occurred right here at Texas Scottish Rite Hospital. That's right. That is amazing. So today, since that time, how have we learned more about dyslexia And can you expand on that a little bit? You bet. Most of us, when we think about dyslexia, think about the reversals that we see in children. What we know today is that dyslexia is not a visually based reading disorder. And the reversals that are so evident are not even a core feature. Children 
and adults with dyslexia do not see backwards. Those are the myths that we have dispelled. Today, we understand that dyslexia is a problem connecting the letters of reading to the sounds of speech. So it is a difficulty learning the very basic feature of our reading in in matching letters to sounds that results in difficulty with reading accuracy and reading efficiency or fluency. And those are the core features as we understand dyslexia now. From a scientific level, we understand much more about the genetics and how there is a genetic connection in about 50% of the cases of dyslexia. We understand much more about the neurological, structural, and connectivity differences. And we understand what works, what actually is effective in helping children with dyslexia. So we have come a long way from that earliest definition. What are some of the things our listeners, and especially the parents, should maybe look for when a child is frustrated trying to read, but they have not been actually diagnosed with dyslexia? The earliest things that parents will see will be a child who struggles to learn the names of the letters. This may be at four years of age, five years of age, or even in first grade. But that would be the beginning sign. You don't have to wait until they're expected to be reading. Parents and teachers can see early signs with letter names, letter sounds, and the beginning use of letters to sound out words. You know, that's amazing. And I hope our listeners really picked up on what you said. So even before a child begins to read, but when they're looking at letters and understanding the letters in an alphabet, that's when potentially some early signs are picked up. That's a great early sign to see. Also, children with dyslexia show us early difficulty manipulating the sounds of speech. I don't mean articulation difficulties. I mean being able to say, cat, mat, those rhyme and hearing and understanding the similarities between spoken words. What are some other contributions, from your point of view, that the Luke White Center has made to the field of dyslexia? Texas has been a leading state in developing services for children with dyslexia in our public schools. And the hospital was very much a part of working with the Texas legislature in the mid-80s. And the legislature in Texas determined that in our public schools, we would screen and treat children for dyslexia. And we would do that in general ed, not only in special ed. So the hospital helped the the legislature understand that there were ways school districts could get involved with treating children with dyslexia and identifying it. This was done in the 80s. Yes, that is, that is uh, phenomenal. And so today, I'm assuming we continue in our independent school districts, we do test for dyslexia. Scottish Rite Hospital has been supportive of helping school districts develop those skills. We had the experience in identifying dyslexia. So we could help work directly with our public school districts to teach them the techniques, the procedures, the tests, and the interpretation 
to identify children with dyslexia effectively and then teach their specialists to use effective intervention curricula and and methods so that the children in our schools can receive dyslexia support intervention and accommodations in their own school and don't have to be transported to a hospital in Dallas-Fort Worth. You know, I can tell just by communicating here with you how passionate you are about what you do. So with your experience and with your knowledge base, as you look in your crystal ball, what do you see in the future as far as dyslexia and how we deal with it? First of all, not every child makes a complete response to the dyslexia interventions. And so we've got to determine and be able to predict which children will not make average reading response, which children will continue to struggle with reading even after their intervention, so that we can refine the interventions to make them more effective. So that would be the first. The second is probably even more important. There are children who do still do not have access to dyslexia programs, and we've got to remove the barriers for their access. And one of the most significant is it currently takes two years to train a teacher to be an effective, licensed dyslexia therapist. We've got to find ways to get the program into the hands of teachers more quickly so that districts, school districts, not only in Texas, but in states across the country, can invest adequate but not overly significant resources to train their teachers so that their students will have access to the very best and most effective. You know, Thomas... That was a great segment. I really enjoyed Gladys. You know, it's refreshing not to be talking about COVID and something that means so much to families that are dealing with dyslexia. Absolutely, and it gives parents such hope. And talking about giving hope, we will be back next week. We've been covering this COVID thing like a blanket, and we're going to continue to do that here on the human side of healthcare. Hope that you will join us at 1 and 7 next week on KRLD and Radio.com.